Welcome to the Our Father Stories podcast, where we share stories of ordinary people experiencing the kingdom of God in everyday life. My name is Nate Paragoy, and I'm one of the pastors here at Our Father Lutheran Church in South Denver, where our mission is helping ordinary people know and share extraordinary life in Christ. The story that you're about to hear is far from ordinary. It's it's extraordinary. Micah Steiner, my good friend, my co-host, fellow pastor here, tell us about what we're going to hear today. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit different of a format than podcasts that we've done in the past. You and I uh, don't really have that much to say because we were sitting at the feet of our friend Chris, who shares his faith origin story, some trauma that he experienced as a child and how God brought him through that, as well as uh, a recent diagnosis that's been life-changing for him and his family. So if this seems a little bit different, uh, that's by design. We wanted to give Chris a larger opportunity to share his uh, incredible story of faith uh, with you all here today. There are a couple things that come up in our conversation that are intended for an adult audience. And so parents, if you're around uh, kids while you're listening to this, throw in your AirPods or listen to this during your commute uh, by yourself in the car. Uh, but we pray that for all of you listening, this would be a blessing for you as it was for us. There were multiple points in the conversation where we were in tears, all three of us. And uh, with that said, without any further ado, here's our good friend, Chris Davis. Uh, my name is Chris Davis. I have a wife, Melissa, who I've been with for 29 years next month and a son that's at uh, Cherry Creek High School as a sophomore, Luke Davis. Uh, we live in Centennial, Colorado, and we've been at Our Father for three and a half months longer than Pastor Nate. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how long that is. Nine years? Yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Nine or ten years, somewhere in there. We were after Scott started and before Nate started. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1975. I'm 48 years old now, and I was in a... Uh, Family situation that was definitely interesting for sure. Um, my biological parents uh, were in met in the army together when my father was 19 and my or I'm sorry my father was 20 and my mother was 18 was when they first met. Uh, they didn't stay together very long. Uh, when they split, they had three kids and then they got back together and had two more kids and then they split again. So my mom, by the time she was, I was trying to figure out the years of this the other day. I think when she was 29. She had five kids total, and was a single mom on welfare. Wow. And had no high school diploma, no education, no background. Uh, sweetest woman in the world, great love for her kids. Um, just was a tough life, and we lived in a part of Cleveland called Slavic Village, which is still to this day. Um, you know, Denver has some areas without means and with less uh, wealth in other areas, but in my opinion, somebody's in real estate for a business, I don't think there is a real ghetto anywhere in Denver. There's no such thing. But there definitely is in Cleveland, and that's where we lived. And it was just a culturally interesting place to grow up because um, it's about a two-minute, three-minute bus ride from where this neighborhood is to downtown Cleveland. Um, and almost everybody that lived in that neighborhood uh, not only had not ever been on an airplane, they'd never even been to downtown Cleveland before. Hmm. They kind of stayed in the same 10 blocks radius, and it's multi-generational families that have been there forever. Um, it wasn't intentional, but everybody had a lot of kids because the more kids you had, the more money you got from welfare and more social services and that kind of stuff. So, um, And this was back in the days of busing. So in the area that they did, there's mostly African-American students. And so I had a reverse situation of where my son was growing up in now, uh, where my son and I were the two of the few white kids that were in the school, which was a blessing in a lot of ways from a diversity standpoint, was also brought some challenges with it. Um, and in hindsight, like I would say about a lot of the hard things that have happened in my life, it's given me an interesting insight and different take than most people about lots of different things. And in that specific case, I really can empathize with African-Americans and the racism and what that looks like because I've seen it from the other side. Um, and it's just, a, I just think it's an interesting perspective. And it's been fun for me because I had a parent one time at the high school when I was coaching basketball there one of our boys that came up to me out of nowhere and just said, I just want you to know that you're the best you're the best coach by far for the black kids. Hmm. And I said to her right away, I said, I'm not even sure what, to, what what that means. Does that mean either I'm doing a good job with these boys or like everyone else is doing such a bad job? I'm <laughs> yeah. the one. Like, I don't know what to say to that, but thanks, I guess. Um, but it's just been a really 
interesting um, culturally how that's played out in the long run because I have a lot of former, former players now that are African Americans that have been become lifelong friends of mine that I did Young Life with or I did basketball coaching with at the high school. Um, but back to my, my background, so there was a real high crime area, so there was a lot of violence and that sort of thing that was going on there. Um, a lot of substance abuse, mostly drinking excessively, um, some marijuana use, but it was mostly excessive drinking that would end in violence all the time. Mm. Um, so it would just, you know, because you lived on the same block with the same families that all knew each other and everybody had a million kids in their family. So if one kid starts getting in a fight with another kid before you know, both families are fighting. And, you know, I remember silly things like a 16-year-old kid that lived next door to us fist fighting his dad because they were both drunk and they started drinking together and then they're fist fighting on my front porch and just uh, that kind of stuff. So it was a different... Um, I never felt like I fit into that area. And what I mean by that is just like, it just didn't seem like that was my place of being like where I should be. The houses that were in there, you can buy a three bedroom house in my old neighborhood right now for $3,500. And as soon as you buy it, they'll ask me, how many more do you want? And the houses haven't been able to be taken care of financially, so they're structurally not sound. So when they get to be meth houses or something like that happens, the city just tears them down and leaves them empty lots. So you'll have a street that used to have 50 houses on it that'll have like seven to 10 houses standing with all these empty vacant lots in between them. Hmm. Um, and it's interesting because the businesses there that are still there, which has not changed a second since I was a kid, is there's a convenience store that has bars in the window that's a pseudo grocery store for the neighborhood. There's a gun shop with bars on the window that's there. And then along this three quarters of a mile stretch of the street called Fleet Avenue, there's seven mortuaries. Hmm. So that tells you all you need to know about that neighborhood. And in the five... Excuse me, and the five um, uh, siblings that were in my family, I'm the oldest. The second one was a baseball phenom. Uh, he was written about in the Cleveland Plain Dealer all the time, was an outstanding baseball pitcher and was recruited by many uh, professional teams and was on track towards going towards professional baseball. Um, he made a mistake, like when we were all young dummies in our 19, 19 and 20 years of age, uh, went out to a bar with some of his friends and started drinking underage with a fake ID. And they left, and there was a couple guys that tried to carjack him and steal his car that was probably worth $200, and they decided that wasn't going to happen, and they got into a uh, fist fight, and he was stabbed 20 times and bled to death in the parking lot. Oh. So um, At 20 years old? At 20 years old. And I was a senior in college when that happened. And I was with my wife. I've been with my wife since I was 19, so we've been together a long time. And uh, that's the hardest I've ever cried in my whole life. And my wife was there for me then, so that was a. Uh, it, it was hard for a lot of reasons. Um, the hardest part for me now is not that he died; it's that when we, just before he died, we had been out there about six months earlier for our engagement. Like I told my wife, if you're going to marry into this family, you need to go to Cleveland with me, and you need to see what you're in for. You need to meet these people and meet my family. And when we got there, my brother that died was so angry with me, like my mom had to force him to come visit and say hi for five minutes because prior to that, backing up in high school, when we were 17 years old, um, we were both here in Denver and we were being taken out of our house and put into foster care and we were given the choice by our uh, people that were looking over us that said, we'll buy you a round trip ticket back to Cleveland for Christmas. Um, we went in with family at Thanksgiving. They said at Christmas, we'll do that. If you decide you want to stay there with your family, uh, you can do that and you don't need to come back and you don't owe us anything. If you want to come back, we'll let you stay with us until you graduate from high school. And that was the option that they gave us. And my brother and, who passed away and myself flew out there and I never had any intention of not coming back here because I knew Cleveland was not for me. Uh, and he stayed and ever since that moment, which was for probably five years before he got killed four years, something like that. Um, he was very angry with me that I abandoned the family. Mm. I was the oldest son. That was his take. Um, he didn't like me anymore. I mean, I think he still loved me. Um, but that was a hard, the hardest thing about his death for me was two things at the time was the way he died and what that must've been like to bleed out in that parking lot when you know you're not going to live and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's going to take minutes to happen. It's not like it happens right away. And then the second part was that we never, were able to get to a place where we reconciled. Yeah. And it was his anger with me about abandoning the family. And uh, so I moved out from Cleveland when I had the opportunity when I was in fifth grade. I'd been talking to my mom about it forever to move to Denver with my birth father, um, who was not great to her or to me, but she really wanted to have 
um, that fatherly influence in life and have the opportunity to live with the father. So she allowed me to move out here with him when I was at the end of my fifth grade year. Um, what I didn't know when I came out and happened within the first 72 hours that I was here was he had a girlfriend and a um, gr her girlfriend's son that it was a very volatile, drugs, drinking type of relationship, lots of yelling and screaming. The second or the third night I was in Denver, it happened that fast. Um, all of a sudden in the middle of the night, one or two o'clock in the morning, I get woken up by her dishes being broken. So I had been here for two days. I got out, went into the living room to see what was going on. She's in a robe and uh, breaking dishes and saying he doesn't care about me. And then she started throwing dishes at him. And then she started calling me names and told me I had to get out of the house. And so the two of us on the second night I was there, I got kicked out, went and stayed the night just in his car down the street and then went back the next day and they reconciled again. Um, so that's kind of where it started. And then it turned out she had a son. Her son was four or five years older than me. Um, had hit puberty. I hadn't hit puberty yet. He started sexually assaulting me um, when I was in that household that the, his mother and my dad didn't know about and I didn't know what to say. So from that first 72 hours I was here, I felt like, holy cow, I'm trapped, but I don't want to go back to Cleveland. That's mm -hmm. always been my biggest fear in my whole life is I don't want to end up back in that life in Cleveland. Um, but what are my choices? I'm a 12-year-old kid. I'm an 11-year-old kid. What do I do? And then this stuff starts happening with the, the uh, her son. And uh, eventually they split, and then that made things even worse because um, he and I went and got an apartment together, and he was just out working all the time, and then when he wasn't working, he would go drink with his friends and not come back. And it got to the point, by the time I was 13, I was living on my own. I mean, he was paying for an apartment, but I never saw him, like literally never saw him hmm. for months on end. This is where in the city? In, in Wheat Ridge. Wheat Ridge, okay. yeah. And I remember vividly, like, one of my lowest points as a teenager when I was 13, on my 13th birthday, I had chicken pox for three days and literally just sat in bed and cried for four days and never saw anybody. Never had anybody to come take care of me. And that just sticks out to me because I just remember coming out of that chicken pox thing feeling like there is a different life here. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen kids at my school that live a different life and that have different parents and that have this, I don't know how I'm going to make that work, but I'm going to tough it out and make it work. Hmm. So my brother that played baseball that passed away and my other brother um, that I'll tell you about in a second that spent time in federal prison for kidnapping a family, um, both moved out here because they, I didn't do them justice and I was not fair to them in telling them what was going on because I didn't want to tell because as soon as I told, the, the answer was going to be, you're coming back to Cleveland. Yeah. And I just didn't want that to happen. So and then another part of me thought, well, maybe if there's three of us out here, we could band together, right, and protect ourselves and do that sort of thing. So... Uh, they came out, and it turned more into a, um, when he was around, it was violence, and violence to the level of hospitalization and that type of stuff. And my role as the older brother was like, I kind of felt like I wanted to insert myself into the, when he was getting on one of those two or hitting them, I would get in the middle of it, so then I would end up taking the brunt of that beating. Um, and then they, we all had great friends and outside of the household, everything in our life, we had good friends, we had good experiences, we had good, you know, we made the most of the situation. It was just challenging to do like it. I mean, my brother that uh, ended up dying um, when he was, just before he moved back to Cleveland, got in an argument with my dad when I wasn't home and we had these windows in front of our house that were six foot by six foot pane glass, just one window. And he threw them right through the front window in a snowstorm and wouldn't let him come back in the house. So that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for my brother that passed. His name's Larry. And uh, he went back to Ohio. So then it was my brother Patrick and I that stayed here. And uh, then Patrick eventually went back, and then I was just here by myself with him again because I just didn't want to go back, and I wouldn't tell what was happening. And I'm not sure why Patrick or, Lee, or, Patrick or Larry didn't ever tell when they went back to Ohio. That story never came out because... Even up to the time when I was 17 and I got taken out of my house from social services, um, my biological mother never knew what happened. Hmm. She didn't know until after this was all over. And, and shame on us because she feels tremendous amounts of guilt for that, and it's not her fault at all. And I've told her that repeatedly, but it's just hard uh, for her, for sure. Um, so the two brothers went back, and I was still here by myself. Um, and it was just getting to the point where, like, the beatings were getting so bad, like, he broke a told me to do the dishes. I did, did the dishes, but I didn't rinse them out before I put them in the dishwasher or something like that. And I hadn't seen him in two days, and he came home and 
was yelling at me and holding the plate up saying, does it look like this plate was clean? Does it look like you rinsed this off? And broke it right across the front of my face. And it split my lip right down the middle, knocked the tooth out. Um, I already had another tooth knocked out earlier in my life from a bike accident. So like I have, you know, that's supposed to be two different teeth, right. but it's, it's one. And again, you're not you're not telling anybody because you don't want to go back to. I don't want to go back Cleveland. to Cleveland yeah. because in my mind's eye, that's that's there's no escape from that. That's worse than this. I can escape the violence. The violence part I can deal with, right? Because I don't see him that much, and he's not around that much. Um, so after the two brothers were back, it just got to the point where like we'd go to the hospital, and then I'd have to make up stories about what happened to me, like on the specific with the plate incident where that happened. Like I told him that I was riding my bike and I slipped on my bike and the tailpipe on the car hit me in the mouth when I went underneath the car and then I went back the next day and that was kind of the last um, last straw that got me to where I was taken out of my house because about a year and a half before that he got mad at me he threw, threw his keys at me and hit me in the face and it cut up like really like took a big chunk out of my cheek on the side and all the teachers were like well what happened to you and we said no I fell down kind of a thing and there started to be some questions about what was going on with me. So the way that I got taken out of the house was ironic because this is back to the faith piece where it comes into. Um, I had come across this great guy, uh, still a good friend of mine. I still spend lots of time with him, named Mick Walter, who was my uh, Young Life leader in high school. And uh, he was, invited me to go to snow camp, and I forged my dad's signature so I could go. <laughs> and he took it, and he knew it was a forgery. But he made this great step of going to two teachers that he knew at my school had a pretty big heart for me. One was a football coach and the other one was the musical teacher or the music teacher. Um, and they basically got the police involved. They got um, social services involved. At this point, Larry was back again. So it was me and Larry were back living together again um, with the father. And they basically said, um, we know what's going on. You need to tell us. And we wouldn't tell him anything. Neither of us would, we just kept saying nothing was going on. And then that week, they had the Young Life board meeting, and Mick, the Young Life leader, basically went and said, I met with Jim Dalton and Coach Stevens, and I met with um, Gail Mesplay, who's another teacher there. Um, and they all said that there's something about this kid. They have talent. They have something to them, but something is not right with their life right now, right? Um, so he took this to the Young Life board, and he said, the police and social services decide they're going to forcibly remove him from the house and put him in foster care. And two families on that Young Life board both said, well, we've known them since they were in middle school. We love those kids. We're not letting them go to foster care. We'll take them in until they graduate. So um, that's how my family got me. I was a 1.2 GPA halfway through my junior year of high school. Um, and they brought us in Thanksgiving of my junior year. My brother was a sophomore. And the story I just told about the plane tickets, they said, we'll give you the tickets to go there and come back. And we went our separate ways and came back and... Um, completely changed my life because the original arrangement was not for me to be their child. I wasn't adopted. We had to convince my birth mother to sign off. That was the first time she found out about the abuse. She didn't know about it at all until then. Um, she had to sign off on guardianship to these people to let them take care of me until I was 18. So the original legal arrangement was I wasn't adopted. I was supposed to live with them until I turned 18 and I was going to be on my own. Um, by the grace of God, and it was in his plans, you know, 40 years later, now it's my family. We spend all our time together, and I have two sisters in that family that are great, and um, that family just took me in and, and put really minimal guidelines on it, just like you were going to give you an allowance of 60 bucks a month. We're going to tell you if you can share your sister's car with her and you can drive if you keep a 3.0 GPA. And for me, that was, like, life-changing. Like, drive a car. What? A, this is amazing. Like, I'm all in on this deal. But I had really good grades and did great in school and college and graduated and did very, very well in school. And then once I got out, I was like, well, now the world's my oyster. I have an education. I'm on my own. I can go do whatever I want to go do. So I was my last two years of college. I went to um, university at UNC, but I also went to Ames Community College to flight school because I thought I wanted to become an airline pilot. Um, no one told me that you don't want to be over six feet tall and be an airline pilot. <laughs> That's not the reason why it didn't work out that way. But uh, I started uh, working. I did you, you do a certified flight instructor hours so that you can get hours built up and get hired is why you do that job. And it pay, pays nothing. It's like 300 bucks a month. But I was getting married to Melissa, and we were. Um, that I had to get a job to make money in addition to flying. So the plan was to fly out of Centennial and to get a job doing something, and I didn't know what. And I was a total, still am a total Broncos homer. 
And right across the street was John Elway's Nissan and John Elway Toyota. I'm like, I'm going to go work for John Elway. I don't care what it is. I'm gonna... <laughs> so I just knocked on the front door at both places, and I said, I don't care if I'm washing cars or what I'm doing. Like, I've got a college degree. I just graduated. Like, I want to work here. I don't care what, what you guys want me to do. So I got a job, and they, I don't know why or what they saw in me, but they gave me a job as a salesperson selling at the Nissan store. Six months later, I got a promotion over to a team leader at the Toyota store. Then I was a used car manager promotion again. Then I was a new car manager promotion again. Then I was a um, did that for a long time. Then I was a new car department head. Then I got switched to a, a Volkswagen store as a general manager. So got all these things, and my I'll never forget. I mean, I never had two nickels to rub together in my entire life. Um, when I was 23 years old, I just started working there. My first full year I worked there, I made $183,000 when I was 23 years old. But it was it was the worst thing that could happen to me, right? Because I know it was it was a lesser version of a professional athlete, right? Because all of a sudden, I was somebody that came from nothing and had no money, so I was completely irresponsible with the money side of things. And you know, God bless her. Melissa has been hands down, outside of the grace of God and my relationship with the Lord, has been the biggest blessing in my life. Because I think with any um, any marriage that is successful and lasts as long as we lasted. You're going to have moments where not only you're going to have hard times that you both don't know if you're going to make it. You just don't know if it's going to happen. And she's had two legitimate times in our marriage that she should have had every right to divorce me and get rid of me, and she didn't do it. And uh, that was a huge blessing. And a big part of that, well, the first one of those two instances was um, when I first started making that big money. Like I went out and I was all never had a car in my life to belong to me like anything like that like my parents that adopted me gave me an old jeep that i drove around it was a blessing and awesome and i loved it um but i never like had my own first car or whatever right before we got married i bought this brand new nissan pathfinder well, i didn't buy it i leased it because that's all i could barely afford to do and i gave it to melissa after we got married so like she had never had a new car she was driving like an 85 honda and so she loved that and then I was so excited. I'm like, well, I'm going to get myself a cool man car now. Like, I'm mad and I'm married and I'm a man. So I got this Mustang GT 5-liter convertible, black-on-black -black car that I just would drive it like a race car every day. And we weren't even married six months. And I went out with these guys trying to be cool that are on this management team, trying to build up the, build, the big excitement and stuff. And uh, I drank so much and decided to get in my car and hot rod my car around. And I was driving down County Line Road. And got back to my, our first apartment we lived in was at Palomino Park right at Quebec in C470. And uh, pulled into the parking lot, made it all the way back fine. But then when I turned around the corner to go into my neighborhood, I long turned it. And another car was coming and I didn't see him and I hit him. Well, I knew I didn't want to do a hit and run. Um, so I got out and I gave him my driver's license and my insurance. And I said, but I can't stay here because I'm going to get in trouble. So like, here's my information. I'll pay for it. I'll take care of it. And these kids were, you know, back then there was only one pot in that Palomino Park that's like six now that was even built. It was called Blue Ridge, but it was all young professionals that were like in their 20s that lived there. That's who, that's who lived there back then. Um, and I gave them this information. I drove to my house and went into my house and went into the bed. And Melissa's side of the story, which is the true side, obviously, <laughs> was that I was got into bed and I was slurring my speech so bad that she couldn't even tell what I was saying. And like 10 minutes later, the doorbell rings because my car's parked right in front of the front door of the house. And it's the Douglas County Sheriff. And she, without hesitating for two seconds, she's like, I know you need a warrant, but he's in there. Go get him. Just sent him back to get me. So when I got down and drove all the way from there down to Douglas County Christensen Justice Center in Castle Rock, because it was in Douglas County, after all that time, so there's at least two hours that passed since I stopped drinking, I still blew like a point three two. Wow, so that's it was a, a lot. And that was within six months of us getting married. So like you can imagine as a young 20-something-year-old girl that's been with this guy that was the president of his fraternity in college and in the party scene and all that kind of stuff, like the, the fears that that would give you. And that's one of the two times that just, I think from a, a spiritual standpoint, I say this all the time and it's true and it's a longer story than we have for today, but I'm over for 10 in the 10 commandments. And it's only through the grace of God that I have been able to do this and what a blessing God's given me through my wife. And I have a hard time with my adopted family because they're, I would say agnostic is more of a fair word to call them an atheist, but um, there's when I try to explain my faith to them, it's like there's only been two times in my life I've never had this feeling where I felt like I talked to God or God talked to me or that just for me that's not been my experience. Um, but there's been two times in my life where I've known without a shadow of a doubt that there is a God and there is a Jesus that loves me, 
And those two times were so powerful for me that it's like, I, that's where my faith comes from. And I see like all these horrible things like my childhood that happened to me. And I figured out a way to get to Denver. And then I was getting beat here and I figured out a way to get through. That wasn't me figuring any of that out. That was me opening myself up to saying like, I know there's another way. And whatever it takes, I'm going to do that. And yes, did I put in the hard work at the dealership to get the good job and put in the hard work at school to get there? Yes. But what that really was about was like the Lord showing me like, it's there. It's not easy. It's painful. It's hard. And you're going to fail over and over again. And you're going to get the DUI where you should have got a divorce and you're going to make these failures. You're going to get fired from your job at the car dealership. But every time something like that happens to me and the older I get, when something majorly bad happens to me, in a really weird, sick, and twisted way, and again, through therapy, I understand it myself through doing decades of therapy, there's a little twisted part of me that gets excited about that. And it's been interesting as the dynamic has changed over my lifetime. We go from that natural place, I think everybody's at when something horrible happens to you, a spouse dies, something terrible happens, of like, what good could the Lord possibly have that could come out of that? I mean, I think that's natural where we all start, and is still to this day where I start. But then 10 years later, you look back and you realize, well, then these four or five things have taken place since then, and that was the plan, and now it makes sense to me why my spouse died or whatever that, that, that trauma is. I think what's shifted for me over the years is there's a lot less of that, even though that's the initial reaction, and a, a bigger, like I said before, twisted. It's a twisted way of looking at the world. The way I look at it is there's something really cool that's going to come of this. Like, what could possibly... This is such a horrible horrible thing what could possibly be good from this and i know i may never understand it i know i might understand it 10 years from now but i get excited about that in some ways and you know we've had personal tragedies that i've shared with you both in our own family with our son before um there were some hard times to get through with him a few years ago and i look back now like when that happened it was like the most painful thing that's ever happened to melissa and i but in hindsight like he's such a great kid now and he has such great coping skills now because of that. He's had the opportunity to participate in therapy with us as a family, with individual, with ourselves as individuals. And he's just become such a leader amongst his peers. He's become such a good person. I hate to say it, he's 16, but he's a good boyfriend. <laughs> he does, he's just become, at 16, he's already a better person than I am. And I think that that's like, at that moment when he was in eighth grade when that happened, and now he's in 10th grade, I couldn't see the forest through the trees from that, but I remember instantly feeling that when we were going through that, like, how could this possibly be good? I know it's going to be, but my twisted self is like, what is that going to be? What is it going to look like? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great perspective, man. I appreciate it. The family that you, that adopted you, they're not Christian. I thought they were young life people. Um, my adoptive family was on the young life board because um, Mick convinced him to get on it because my sister, Rachel, adopted sister and myself, were both doing Young Life. And they said, well, both of your kids are involved in Young Life. Why don't you come sit on this committee, which basically was a fundraising deal to raise money to run, mm -hmm. run the deal. So they were on that with uh, Pete and Marilyn Coors, um, who we were friends with, like them. So just different connections was how we knew them. But they had known me because Rachel, my sister, and I had done music together since I was in sixth grade. So they have known me for years, and I had been invited to their house, and we were friends, and like we would go over there with like a group of three or four of us, and my my mom now would feed us and take care of us. And when they heard about it, I don't know what I, I shouldn't say. I don't know what it is. It was the Lord, absolutely, that influenced them. But for some reason, these people that are very successful, wildly successful people in business, in their family life, in their social circles, and they're just these great, great, great people felt called by God, even though they wouldn't probably say that themselves, to take me in and to have me come mm. do that. So um, they are, I would say my parents um, would say, my mom would say, she does say, there's a higher power that's in charge of all this stuff. And we've gone through some big stuff with her brother recently that she's um, said that more often. Uh, my dad's conversation and I, we had a very... Um, seminal conversation between the two of us years ago in Phoenix when it was just the two of us down there talking about faith. And uh, he, his way of explaining it to me was like, I want, I want that to be true. I want to feel that. And I told him about the two times where I felt like there's no question that there is a God. Like, I know at this moment, I feel God's presence. Like, 
I didn't hear him talking to me. The skies didn't open up. It wasn't the cloud, no trumpets, no nothing. But I just know at this moment, like in my heart of hearts, like I, God is touching me and telling me that like that he's real. Um, and my dad just said, I really hope I feel that someday. And hmm. I just said, that'll be my prayer for you for the rest of my life. Wow. Yeah. So, so you became a Christian through Young Life. I would say that I believed in God um, before that. How that happened, I don't know. But as far as having a faith that belonged to me, uh, I can tell you the exact moment it happened. It was that uh, Young Life snow camp when I went up and I forged my signature and I knew I was going to be getting taken out of the house. And they do this really cool thing on the last night where they're doing the, all the speeches that the, ta- the speaker gives the whole time are basically the gospel is what it's going through. And then on the Saturday night, it ends with... Um, God's opened this door and you've turned your back on him. And it's like this big visual thing of like, you've left and then you go outside in the darkness of Buena Vista in the stars and all the lights at the camp are completely shut off and you're out there by yourself and everybody has to spread out and you can't talk to anybody and just think about life. And like, it just hit me like a, a bolt of light, a bolt of lightning, like, and not in a good or a positive way. I literally just started sobbing so bad and just like, I need this so bad in my life. And that was one of the two times that I felt like for sure that God was like, hmm. I'm here. So um, that's for me when I had a faith of my own. And ever since then, I think everybody, we all go through moments where you ebb and flow with your faith and you feel it sometimes. And sometimes you really have doubts and you're not super sure. But I have really um, felt that my whole life. And even now, this recent thing we were just talking about with the Parkinson's uh, disease diagnosis that I got about a year and a half ago, for a split second, I, I felt... Why would God do this to me? But again, that twisted part of me again is like, what cool is going to come out of this? So Chris, you had a very troubled childhood, came to faith through people who God brought into your life who weren't even Christians and adopted you, and then had a successful career, start a family, and then a couple of years ago, you're diagnosed with Parkinson's. Tell us about that. Well, it was a weird thing because I thought that there was like a multitude of different things that were going on with me. Like I thought I was having a dislocated hip and I was having a Achilles problem and back pain and all this different stuff. But the first thing I noticed that something was wrong neurologically was I couldn't throw. And it was so hard because I just love spending time with my son so much. I couldn't throw batting practice to my son anymore. I couldn't throw a strike. And he would get so frustrated with me because I was always really good at doing that. And I coached him in basketball and I have done, he loves sports and he would get so frustrated with me but didn't want to act out at that. And so it was hard for me to watch the, his, through his eyes is what made it painful. It's because like, what is wrong with dad? Like, is he trying to teach me something here or what? But I could not throw a strike to save my life in batting practice. I couldn't even do soft toss to put a soft toss where it should go. And uh, I had a neurologist that I went to go see, and they saw me for about six to eight months and thought something was wrong. But I had this really weird thing called an essential tremor, which a lot of people have, which is just a shaking of the hands that mm-hmm. is not ne- neurologically related. It's not dangerous. It's just normal that happens to some people. But because I had that, my Parkinson's symptoms had to get so bad before a neurologist could see it, it was a delayed diagnosis. So by the time I got diagnosed... There's five stages of Parkinson's disease. I got diagnosed in stage three. Towards the end of stage three is when I first found out. What about does that it. mean, stage three? So uh, the first stage, without getting into all the details of it, is um, the um, part of your brain, the medulla oblongata that controls your breathing and your um, heartbeat is not impacted by Parkinson's disease because it's in the inner part of the brain. There's another structure outside of that called the substantia nigra, which is the dopamine producing part of the brain that gives you dopamine that helps you with muscle coordination. So basically the five different stages of Parkinson's are sort of benchmarks where you lose function that you didn't have before. So in stage three is basically you'll have a first stage, you'll get a little bit of a tremor on your weaker side, usually your non-dominant side, so one on my left side that will then transfer to your right side, which is stage two. And then stage three is when you're losing functionality of being able to do things. Um, And then stage four is when you can't walk on your own anymore. That's sort of the next stage. Um, The, the, um, before I got up, so you get your initial diagnosis from a, a, a neurologist, 
they won't officially say you have Parkinson's until you get a second opinion. So we, I went to the University of San Francisco, California, San Francisco, which is one of the best neurological places in the country. And thanks, one of the blessings of COVID, there's always those looking back, right, was that they said, even if you lived in San Francisco, we wouldn't have you come in for the diagnosis. We're going to do it on Zoom. So I didn't have to fly out there. I just got to do it over Zoom. But they confirmed that I had Parkinson's disease. And then, then they can start putting you on the medication. So before I went on the medication, I had about a two-month window that I had had my first diagnosis and the second before I got the medication. I had completely lost the ability to write. I couldn't write at all. I couldn't type 30% of the time because my hands would be shaking so bad I couldn't be stable enough to do that. Um, I was having near falls. Um, and then I started taking, this has been about 14, 15 months ago, I got the diagnosis and medicine started. Um, I started taking one pill three times a day. Um, and in 14 months, I'm already up to taking 48 pills a day. 48 pills a day. And two shots a week hmm. is what I'm up to now. And all of the medication that you take for Parkinson's disease is to help um, manage the symptoms. It doesn't do anything to slow the disease down. It doesn't cure it. Um, there's no cure for it. And the real stinker is that everybody's pace of development is different. So you could have it and be in a wheelchair in three months, or you could have it and live for 30 years and have Parkinson's disease. So I always think it's important to say when people would talk about Parkinson's is the first two things that pop into everybody's mind is Michael J. Fox and Muhammad Ali, that they had Parkinson's. Yeah. Michael J. Fox has lived with it for a long time. But essentially what's happening is a part of your brain that allows you to create this substantia nigra, create dopamine, is dying. And the rest of your brain is not dying. So you lose a little bit of functionality every day. So when this first happened to me in the diagnosis, back to this cycle I've gone through of like, you feel upset and what, what's God's plan with this and where is this going? What's going to come out of it? The twisted side of me is like, well, now what is this cool thing? Is this going to set me up for down the road? Um, it's a little scary when you find out I'm supposed to live till my mid fifties and I'm 48. That's a little scary. Um, just based on the average amount of time from diagnosis until people pass and you don't die from Parkinson's disease. Um, you, um, the two most common f causes of death with Parkinson's patients is an unintended fall where you hit your head and no one's there and you bleed out or aspirational pneumonia, which is where you start losing your swallow, which I've already started to do, and you get fluid in your lungs and you get an infection and you die from pneumonia. So um, I think the thing for me with this that's been so interesting is that, like, I told everybody about it right away. I didn't want to make it a secret. Like, I mean, you guys knew about it. My family knew about it. Um, and I did not shed one tear and did not feel one bit of anger because the way I look at it is, like, my path with the Lord was here, and Parkinson's moved it here. Now, what do I make the best of that little deal? Like, I take it as an exciting thing, an exciting challenge, like, because Parkinson's sucks. Obviously, it's terrible. But uh, it's just cool to figure out, like, where is that going to take? But, boy, I'll tell you, when I told my son at dinner that I had it, I just lost it. Couldn't hardly talk. And the only time I ever shed a tear about it to the context of him because we all know with our own dads and we're all parents it's like your kids are younger and they see you as superman and you can do everything and then all of a sudden he's going through his peak athletic years and playing sports and doing all this great stuff and he's in his teens and 20s and the peak of manhood as far as ability and strength and jumping and all this stuff and while he's doing that he has to watch his dad go the opposite direction so at a faster rate than we all it happens for everybody Right, whether you have Parkinson's or not, but it's just it breaks my heart for him to have to watch that. Yeah. But that's that's life and it's beautiful because it's God's plan and something really cool is gonna come out of this. So Chris, we're recording this the week before Easter. It's holy week in the church. And I'm curious as you think about the resurrection of Christ and your resurrection to come. You know, we've talked about the plan and the way God works through hard things. When you think about the resurrection of Christ and how that makes a difference with the diagnosis that you have and the years you have left, what's on the top of your heart on most days? Just how cool it is. How amazing it is. Like, not just that that redemption is coming and God's coming back and we're all going to heaven and all those kind of great things that are huge blessings, but how cool it is that, like, God knew this was going to happen to me. He knew I was going to have my son. He knew I was going to have my wife. It was all set in motion as his will. And if I just ride the wave, the wave that God's putting me on, and stop trying to swim across the current, 
and just go with what he's going and just trust and just know that there's a plan. I mean, for my son to watch me deteriorate in a honorable way and to watch me deteriorate in a faithful way and not have my faith shaken by this awful thing, um, I think will last him his whole life and will help him be a better dad and a better person down the road. But I just think to answer your question directly, how cool it is. Like, it's just so cool. I mean, not that it's, I'm not worried about like, I hear people talk about in groups of men and stuff that are not necessarily Christian, but they're with other Parkinson's patients. They're like, oh, I'm excited to die because when I go to heaven, I get a new body. I don't even think about it that way. Like, that doesn't even occur to me because this body that I have that's failing right now is the body that God gave me. And how cool that I can just start taking medication 14 months ago and I can drive again, I can write, I can hang out. I still can't throw batting practice to my son, but I can go watch him play baseball and I'm at all his games. Like, how, what a blessing that is. Yeah. And I mean, it's always joke around with, I don't anymore because I don't have high school kids anymore, but um, just like, I was used to tell him this funny thing when we do cabin time at Young Life about the imperfectness of our bodies, right? And how we are imperfect in this imperfect world and broken people fighting away through the world. But we're also blessed by God and knowing what the promise is of the salvation. Because I have this weird thing, like my, there's nothing right about my body, but like my, one of my feet is a 10 and a half and the other is a 12 and a half. And I'm like, why would God do that? And I would put my feet out when we're sitting in cabin time and show them, like, that's not real. You're doing something. Like one of my legs is like three inches shorter than the other one. And like those kind of things I think are so funny because all the things that we think about, like that the world places value on, athleticism, beauty, being in good shape, they don't mean anything. They don't mean anything. This slightly overweight, even though I've lost all this weight, awkward body that can't throw a baseball, <laughs> this is what God made. And this is like, I can do cool things that other things can't do. And to the point where like my son and I can joke around about the Parkinson's and stuff in a healthy and a productive way. We're like, we're wrestling around and stuff. I'm like, he'd be like, bro, you got the parks. Don't mess with me. I'll take you out. <laughs> and like, it's just so, like that kind of stuff is so awesome. And then we'll wrestle and I'll get him to the ground. I'm like, I got the parks and I'm still kicking your butt. It's, it's just like... That, that vision and that picture is such a perfect piece of an imperfect body and what is really important to me than anything else. And, and in my marriage, right? I mean, that's another thing that is a hard thing to talk about. But as you lose coordination and muscle things, like, it's a part of life. And I know in the church we don't talk about it a lot. But, like, my sex life with my wife is very important to me. And I love my wife and I love her to death and I love our intimacy and I love our time together. But, like, that's going to go away. You know, all those things, you're going to lose them all. And uh, jokingly, she gets really mad at me when I say this to her, but a couple of times I've joked around, I'm like, you're still young and hot. You should go out there and find a new guy. We can still be friends and like, <laughs> hang out. And, like, but like, why you're still young and hot, like, you should go find a new husband. And she gets really mad at me when I say that. But um, yeah, she's, she's just great. And it's just the only part that's, that's, that's hard is just that knowing my son's going to watch me deteriorate and my wife's going to watch me deteriorate and what that's going to look like. I'm still hoping for, and I don't mean this in a suicidal ideation way, but that I'm going to step off the curb and get hit by a bus that I don't see coming, right? Because mm -hmm. that would be a better way to go than the more likely way, which is I'm going to live for another 20 to 30 years because I'm doing all the exercise and taking all the medicine and doing all the right stuff, but then they're going to have to take care of me when I have to go to the bathroom and all that kind of stuff that yeah. you just don't want to have to have your family do for you. But if that's the way it goes, that's another sick and twisted cool way that God's going to teach me and my family something. Yeah. And I know that's such a weird way to look at it, and people think I'm so bizarre when I say that, but it's just genuinely how I feel about it. You know, having conducted a number of weddings and been married for nearly 13 years myself, it always blows me away that how we say, you know, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, you know, uh, till death uh, does us part, you know, that we never imagine the things that we're actually signing up for yeah. when we say those words. And that's where I think my wife is a superhero in a lot of ways. Because she, not just with the Parkinson's, not just with the DUI, not just with all the mistakes I've made in my life and all the terrible things I've done to her, against her, at her, to harm her, um, she has never for one second blinked at that promise. She's been super frustrated, she's been super angry, likely as she should be, but she has just been such a steadfast lover of Jesus to the point so much of like my job is to serve him in this time when I want to hate his guts and figure out a way to do it and she is just otherworldly in that I just have never seen another woman that is like that ever hmm. ever and 
I know that's my personal bias and my selfishness, but she is just the cat's meow in every possible way. And I'm just so lucky to, if there's anything in this world I didn't deserve, it was her. Hmm. That's grace. Yeah. Yeah. So if that doesn't prove to you that there's a Jesus, I don't know what will. <laughs> I got Melissa. If I can get Melissa, there's definitely a Jesus. <laughs>what would you say to somebody who was in their own version of something hard, knowing that Jesus is risen, that there is a new body, there is life to come? Uh, what would you say? Probably different than most people. I would say recognize the parts of that that you already have now. So like for me with the Parkinson's thing, right? Like the fact that I couldn't write and now I could write, is there's, that's a, a, just a glimpse into the Lord's grace on earth that we have a piece of that now. And to know that that is going to be fully fulfilled down the road through his resurrection is amazing. That's great. But even in the hardest times, like the fact that I can write again is a miracle. And that's a blessing from God that's given me this quote-unquote perfect body, which as you look at this, none of this is perfect. <laughs> but I can write again. And I can, you can barely read it, but I can write. And it's going to go away. But appreciating those times when he gives you that when you're in that tough part, whatever you're going through, and we're going through Easter Sunday now, that that's just God's promise. And we have, and just recognizing that instead of being like, everything sucks right now, but someday I'll die and it'll come back to me. That he shows us pieces of that every single day. Micah, you and I are both dads of boys. Uh, you know, when, when Chris was talking about the day that he realized he couldn't throw a baseball to his son anymore and how that was an indicator that something else was really going wrong. Uh, we were, all three of us were in <laughs> tears in that moment uh, during our conversation. That, that really hit me. Yeah. I, uh, I, I'm drained in a good way, in, hmm. a, in a spiritually healthy way. Uh, for example, just thinking through what are some of the things that I take for granted and, and being reminded that that's a blessing that I, that I want to cherish what are some ways in which maybe I get frustrated with my children um, for things that are silly uh, and, and, and repent of that in that moment? That's what I mean by draining. Like you're just working through this in a spiritual, healthy way where Jesus is replacing some bad thinking or bad actions with some good things. So I, I just, Chris, if you're listening, or I know you're listening, uh, we want to thank you so much for your honesty and, and, and sharing that with us today. Let's get to a couple takeaways. Uh, for me, I've known a lot of people in my life so far uh, who've, who've been through a lot of good things, a lot of hard things. For me, Chris is the closest person to Joseph mm -hmm. that I've ever met, uh, where in his story, true story, end of the book of Genesis, hard thing, hard thing, hard thing, hard thing, hard thing. And at the end of his life, he turns to his brothers who had betrayed him decades earlier, and he says, God used this as a good thing. Yeah. Uh, in fact, he says, chapter 50, verse 20, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. And to hear Chris uh, talk about the twisted excitement, I think was the phrase yeah. he used, that, that knowing not in hindsight, but in foresight, that, that God was going to turn this around, that he had a plan to work through the hard things to bring about a good thing. Like, like Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where God says, um, or where Paul says, that God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't necessarily mean God plans or uh, has a purpose that we would go through hard things. But we know that at least we can be certain as we read that, that he has a plan to work good things as a result of our hard things. What, I, I what was jumped thinking, out for you? I was thinking as you were talking, uh, or as we were talking earlier, you know, with the story of Joseph, you can read that narrative very quickly and, and not think about how Joseph must have felt being put in prison, being torn away from his family, uh, being put in, you know, all these different things. And you just kind of read it. And then, it, then you get to that part like, oh, what? And Joseph stands up and he says, well, you meant for evil, God meant for good. And you can, it's like this great story. Yeah, like a bow, a happy ending, they ride off <laughs> right. in the sunset. But yeah. you know that he was a human being, so he was emotionally, I mean, he, Chris talked, talked about his trauma. Uh, Joseph would have had that trauma. Uh, what I appreciated about Chris being so honest with us and being able to share those things is it gives us permission as human beings to go, you know what, I don't always like the, the things that God uh, allows me to experience or uh, chooses for me. Uh, and it, it's okay to cry. It's okay to be frustrated, to be angry. And yet the, the experience or the, the foresight 
afterwards to look back and go, oh my goodness, God, you were leading this entire time. Uh, <laughs> one, I'm so sorry for my lack of faith. But then two, oh, thank you, Jesus, that you've been with me this whole time, that you've been leading, that, you've been, that, that your promises are true and good. Wow, that's amazing. And that's true whether or not we have the hindsight or the foresight, yeah. right? Like, so there's the promise, uh, Romans chapter 8, later in the chapter. I mean, that's really powerful where Paul talks about that we're not conquerors, or we're more than, more conquerors, than conquerors, that none of those things separate us from him. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I'm pulling it up right now because it's such a good verse for us to read. We're, we're in Romans chapter 8. And he lists all these things. Uh, he says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? He says, no, and all these things. So all those bad things, right? Uh, and all those things, everything, we are more than conquerors through him, Jesus, who loved us. And then he, this great promise, 38 and 39, I'm, I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, powers or height or depth, Anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that really, it boils everything down to everything that we experience in this world. It all fails miserably in comparison to that amazing gift of knowing Jesus as your Savior, knowing how much you're loved by Him. And uh, <laughs> that's what Chris, uh, you know, so very... Uh, poignantly shared with us, and I'm just grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah, it got me at the end uh, where we were talking about the difference the empty tomb makes. And we're recording this during Holy Week and uh, just a couple days away from the celebration of Good Friday and Easter. And when he talked about how um, the, the drugs that he's taking now to... to you know, slow down. 48 pills. 48 pills a day? Oh, my gosh. Uh, and how he hasn't been able to, to write or to type. Uh, but the, the drugs he's taking are, like, helping him restore some of the things that he has already begun to lo lose. Mm -hmm. Things that we take for granted that we can do all the time. Uh, and how they're a glimpse of what we will get back in full and in an even better way than we can imagine even right now when Jesus returns and renews all of creation and restores the new heavens and the new earth and what we lost in Eden. Yeah. Oh my gosh, like that blew me away. Yeah, yeah. And we talk about extraordinary life, uh, and that's not just someday when we die and go to heaven, that we get that today, the moment of our baptism, that when we belong to him and simply uh, the fact that we are his and he is ours that God gives us glimpses even now of the extraordinary life that we'll have in full when he returns. I mean, that, that for me is what I'm going home with today. Yeah. So people will be listening to this post-Easter. Uh, hopefully they, they, you, you got to go to Good Friday here, Monday, Thursday, Easter, Sunday. Uh, as you go about this week, whenever it is you're listening to this, our prayer for you is that this story of Chris would be an inspiration not to be a better person, uh, not to muster up more faith if you don't feel like you have enough faith, but to look back to the empty tomb on Easter Sunday and draw everything that you need from that reality. Uh, it can make a difference for you eternally, uh, but it can make a difference for you uh, right here and now. Thanks for listening to this uh, longer story, this special episode with our friend Chris Davis. And for more stories just like this one, go to ourfatherlutheran.net slash stories.